Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Weber. I'm a medical oncologist, and uh, today we'll be talking about optimizing surgical and patient outcomes in resectable melanoma. I have with me today two outstanding colleagues. I'll let them introduce themselves. Michael? Hi, I'm Michael Tetzloff. I'm a dermatopathologist at the University of California, San Francisco. Brian? I'm Brian Gassman. I do surgical oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. So let's start out by talking about adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy. I guess the question is, who's eligible for these treatments? I mean, in my institution, we're pretty liberal uh, about who we treat. Uh, we'll basically treat anybody with stage 2B, 2C, 3B, 3C, D, and 4 melanoma. But Brian, what about at your institution? Who, who do you think should be getting adjuvant therapy? I mean, do you treat the three A's? Yeah, so we have a similar approach. Uh, we even have clinical trials for uh, uh, less uh, risky disease with less risky therapies. And again, in a clinical trial setting, uh, three A's is a good question. Uh, the three A's that were studied in the trials uh, have been sort of uh, jug- juggled around to the three A's we have now due to HECC staging differences. But, but because of that ambiguity, we at least offer it to all patients and we tailor it to the patients. We look at things like lymph node involvement, how thick the t- well, tumors are now much thinner, but, uh, but bottom line is we also look at how what the patients are thinking and wanting as we, we make those decisions. So, Michael, I guess one challenge for you as the pathologist or the dermatopathologist is making decisions based on the sentinel lymph node biopsy because one big deal is in adjuvant trials, nobody who had less than a millimeter of tumor was treated. So does that put the pressure on you to have to quantitate the amount of tumor in lymph nodes? It, it does, but I think that's pretty standard practice to, to you know provide sort of a, a, a two-factor measurement, general location within the node, and, and, and so forth as just a sort of standard of care to report a sentinel lymph node. That's certainly what we did at MD Anderson and, and how I've tried to integrate the practice here at UCSF. Yeah, I guess one big issue in the community is, from the pathologic point of view, is sort of standardization of melanoma reporting at, you know, I mean, a place like UCSF or MD Anderson or here at Cleveland Clinic, there are templated ways of reporting out like the primary and the metastasis. Is this a problem that you never see this done right in the community or or are pathologists doing it right? Oh, I think I think in general, pathologists in the community are doing it pretty well, honestly, uh, for both primary melanoma reporting and uh, sentinel lymph node. I think the CAP guidelines, uh, certainly for the primary tumor, provide that. Um, and, and I think most of the reports I see, uh, uh, you know, capture the important elements in the node as well. Uh, you know, it can certainly be variable and, and is a challenge. So, Brian, I guess the big issue is who wouldn't you treat with adjuvant therapy? You know, a patient comes in the office, who are the folks you would not offer adjuvant therapy to? Yeah, the most common type would probably be patients with significant underlying medical conditions that may not have a long longevity uh, they themselves are uh, unreliable patients, uh, uh, patients in nursing homes, and and patients who have either experienced or also have concurrent life-threatening uh, worse cancers than the, the, the tumor we're trying to treat. But in general, like you, we are pretty liberal with at least offering the therapies 
ultimately, though, because they're so readily available, many of them, uh, we sort of get the process started and they end up getting treated elsewhere. So we, the assumption is they are getting their adjuvant therapy, but they're not being done by us. Yeah, I, I'm usually very reticent to offer adjuvant therapy to someone with actual active autoimmune disease like RA or lupus or scleroderma who takes active therapy, meaning DMARDs or similar drugs. I just saw a guy with RA who's been on DMARDs for years. And boy, he's not a guy I'm eager to offer adjuvant Nevo or Pembro to. I mean, adjuvant targeted therapy, yeah, yeah. good. But same, you know, with my luck, he'll be BRAF negative. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a tough situation. And then uh, what about neoadjuvant therapy? Who would you offer neoadjuvant therapy to? So we've been increasingly giving that to almost anybody with uh, gross disease. Uh, we've used it for a number of reasons. During COVID, it became a big deal because we couldn't get patients in the operating room. And I think that sort of loosened up our indications because we, were, we had to do it um, for, you know, obviously for logistic reasons and to give these patients some type of treatment. Uh, I think the big question for us is we see a lot of very large but yet resectable tumors. The data in neoadjuvant isn't very good for these large tumors. Our experience hasn't been that great, at least from a pathology standpoint. Uh, that doesn't mean after seeing S1801 that they're not going to get some other benefit. Uh, so we still do it knowing that we may not see a major pathologic response. But I would say if there's anybody with gross disease that is resectable, we will at least consider, if not offer, neoadjuvant therapy. Generally, immunotherapy, uh, I would say, would be uh, mostly Relanevo right now, anti-LAG3 plus anti-PD-1. Uh, second would be uh, anti-PD-1 monotherapy. And our medical oncologists, unlike many others, are, are much more reluctant to give ipinevo in the neoadjuvant therapy. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I would routinely give ipinevo routinely do give ipinevo, especially if a patient pops up with like a large bulky lesion. I'm just thinking of a patient I saw two days ago, large bulky lesion on the arm, neglected, in transits all around it. Surgical colleague takes one look at it and says, uh-oh, I'm not operating on this. Two cycles of ipinevo, if necessary, I'd even go up to four and then send it back to the surgeon. But, but Michael, I guess it creates new workload for you because now you have to carefully assess what happens at the time of resection and put a heck of a lot of effort into grading the tumor by necrosis, which was never an issue before. But I mean, I guess there are standards, right? Well, the, the, the standards are emerging. You're, you're right. I think the, the first challenge is knowing that the patient was treated. Um, you know, one of the more common consults that I've seen personally is just, you know, people not knowing the patient was treated and how to interpret. And then you come back and find out, yeah, you know, they, they received neoadjuvant therapy. And so, of course, this, the changes that you see are a function of, of treatment. And yeah, you're, you're completely right. The, the primary challenge in grading the response is not only knowing that they were treated, but then submitting tissue in the systematic manner that we proposed in our neoadjuvant melanoma white paper to sort of provide a systematic topographic map of that tissue um, to then appropriately gauge the extent to which that patient uh, uh, patient's tumor responded to the therapy. So all of those are true, but I think if you have kind of an integrated uh, uh, a communication with the clinical team, then that directs the subsequent decisions. Yeah, and I guess the last issue is how do you follow them? I mean, personally, I'll see someone in that scenario after adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapy, or if they don't go on adjuvant after neoadjuvant, I'll see them every three months with scans for two years, then every six months for three years. 
then a one-year graduation visit, and then if they want to be followed by a PCP, they can, but actually at our institution, nobody ever leaves. It's like they're here forever, which is great. We follow them forever. But what about you, Brian? How often do you see these patients during adjuvant and after adjuvant therapy? So I think we have a, a lower threshold uh, or maybe a higher threshold to say you're in, inoperable. We, I, I personally will operate on 20 centimeter axillary groin nodes, work with vascular surgery if I need to. Uh, and so uh, for that reason, we're following them for multiple reasons, partially for cancer recurrence and distant metastasis, uh, for sure a minimum of two years uh, with, with more intensive radiology. Uh, probably after two years, probably at least yearly with imaging and physical exam. Um, and we always get a yearly brain MRI. Um, but yeah. these are very, very high-risk patients in the new adjuvant setting. In the adjuvant setting, like I said earlier, a lot of these patients end up in the, in the community. So we'll, even if we treat them for the first year, many of them, because they come from very far distances, will end up getting their uh, their, their you know scouting uh, imaging out there. But I think a lot of uh, our partners are doing it every six months, right. even up to okay. five years, and that's pretty typical. I'd like to thank my colleagues uh, for joining me today, and I would like to thank you for joining me and participating in this educational activity. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.